Hi. Uh, so, um, bit of an apology. So yesterday I had just a very fairly long prepared thing and I just read it. Uh, what I have today is, uh, I do have some prepared comments, but um, they're much more fragmentary. And um, I want to sort of motivate what the, the topic. So um, the first topic, the one on materialism, was sort of obvious to me. Okay, I said, well, you need to do a second topic, a second talk. So uh, I thought, well, you know, uh, Greece, how democracy, and uh, the theme of democracy has certainly been in the news a lot. <clears throat> in fact, I would say particularly the last two years, and the theme of this sort of right-wing populism, United States Trump, and the question of, you know, is democracy under attack, and what democracy would mean. Uh, so, I thought of the idea of talking about democracy, both ancient and modern. And uh, not, it's, this is not a philosophical talk like yesterday, it's more a sort of historical talk, but it's not uh, going to be too specific. I started thinking about a more specific treatment, and I realized that that would just um, quickly eat up time to start talking about anything specific. But I will try to sort of examine the question of democracy in world history. Um, so the, the first thing that must be remarked about democracy is that it was forgotten. Uh, it flourished in a rather small part of the world here and other few places around the Mediterranean for a couple of centuries, and then it disappeared for a couple of millennia. Uh, but since its revival, which is again a recent phenomenon, I mean, I would say, say since the beginning, late 18th century it started, um, it's now spread to an extraordinary extent. Uh, and it, and um, not only is it spread as something that more or less is done in practice, and we could discuss what democracy means, because one of the problems with talking about democracy is people have different senses of what it means. But maybe more importantly than whether people actually live in democracies, or whether democracies are real, is that almost everyone now accepts democracy um, as an ideal. Um, so it appeared precociously in the ancient poets. After a few centuries, it succumbed to first Hellenistic imperialism and then Roman. And then it revived, but it did so on an entirely different social basis. Um, and as I said, even after the rise of the bourgeoisie, the age of democracy, the age when it really only begins in the late 18th century. And even then, it was something that was a provocation. That being a Democrat, being for democracy, was not seen as a good thing by many people. Um, the second thing that must be remarked about democracy uh, is that it has an almost universal triumph in rhetoric and theory, if not in fact. In fact, of course, its triumph is questionable. Uh, even leaving aside the question of what constitutes true democracy by a fairly conventional standard of more or less free elections, etc., by one recent estimate, only 43%, uh, slightly less than the majority of the world's population, now lives in a, quote, democracy. Uh, so I remember reading this number, and I'd just been reading uh, immediately before 
uh, in a poll that this was the same uh, percentage uh, of Americans who supported Donald Trump. And I thought, oh, so that's not a majority of the world living in a democracy, but it's a large number of people. And in certain continents, for example, in Europe, even the Indian subcontinent, the Western Hemisphere, democracy is more or less standard. And it does less well in Asia and Africa, but one could imagine easily a world, if one is fairly lucky, where the majority of human beings would be living in, quote, capitalist democracy. Capitalist democracy not meaning a society like Greece or the United States. Not, not validating it, but just neutral bourgeois democracy. Um, um, so, if democracy, if democracy is um, then not actually a universal government, um, it it has, and and whether or not one feels it has, it's under threat. It, it's something about this as a norm. Since we're talking about norms, like the idea of democracy as a norm, I think requires some sort of historical consideration. Um, because from the perspective of world history, it's not a norm. This is, this is an, an unusual phenomenon. And it was not something that would necessarily have seemed obvious throughout significant parts of the 20th century. In fact, for a large part of the 20th century, socialists and leftists and liberals feared that democracy was doomed, right? Much more intensely and with much better reason than people tend to feel now. Right, um, and it wasn't even probably true, you know, in large parts of the world where you have bourgeois democratic elections. You know, in Latin America, there were this wave of dictatorships in the 70s, 80s. In Europe, um, in Southern Europe, like Greece and Iberia, of course, you had these right-wing dictatorships uh, up into the beginning of the 70s, and uh, in Eastern Europe, you had. Stalinist or state socialist dictatorships, etc. Um, so, um, again, um, um, the other thing that I, I wanted to comment on was the in the politics of our time, because this rhetoric of democracy being a good thing is taken for granted across the political spectrum, the way political discontents are expressed is in the form of a democratic rhetoric. And that's true on both the left and the right, right? Or in the center, right? So that, that you have this notion that, that everyone is for democracy. Right? and that, that, that they are the true expressors of democracy. Um, so, uh, you know, leftists will criticize bourgeois democracy as a sham uh, because it, you know, mass capitalist domination, and they hold up against this image of a false democracy, a true one, which would involve, like, like socialism, and, and um, you know, on the right, you have like a populist rhetoric that, that says democracy is undermined by, by elites, right? So that, that, you know, while Trump is feared as an enemy of democracy, he 
He also to his supporters that appears as a supporter, right? You know, Brexit. Um, and again, this is this is anxiety, this complicated discourse about democracy. So that you know, Brexit or the election of Trump, you you hear people simultaneously, like with Trump, you hear people both fear that democracy is under attack, that Trump represents the unraveling of some kind of democracy. And then in a kind of lower voice, sometimes you hear people express anxiety that this is the product of democracy, right? That 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 somehow this person was elected, right? That that you know that 43% or whatever of the population, right? Or, or he won with like 48% of the vote. That, that that's still a lot of people, and that, that the masses of people, maybe you can't trust people to choose good government, right? Which is which is sort of an idea that again was common on the right and now is like increasingly I think heard on the liberal left. Um, furthermore, as I said, the political discontents of our time are formulated in democratic terms, whether by a populist right or an identity politics left. So if you think about it, like again, the, the identity, most issues of identity politics are formulating what I would or what are called identity politics, or formulated what I would call are essentially democratic terms, right? That some group of people doesn't have their rights respected as citizens, right? I mean, the, the, whether it's women, or blacks, or disabled people, or sexual minority, the, the point is that some principle, which is now assumed to be essential to democracy, at least to modern democracy, though it wouldn't have been seen as essential to ancient democracy, has been violated. Um, so, um, and as I said, I don't mean to suggest that this corresponds to the rise of genuine equality or genuine political control by the masses of their own faith. Indeed, almost all the political symptoms of our time stem actually from the contrast between a universal democratic rhetoric and social reality. Essentially, of course, this is because we live under capitalism but we seem collectively to have forgotten the possibility of a politics that could extract humanity from this, and even the phrase live under capitalism has been obscured, perhaps ironically enough, particularly with the supposed left. One could say, therefore, to paraphrase the title of a famous book, that ours is not an age of democratic revolution, but of democratic discontent. So how did it come to the idea to be the case that an idea for most of human history that would have seemed quite absurd that people should rule themselves is now accepted as self-evident in theory, although it is, of course, very far from the case in reality. Uh, in the Game of Thrones, which I haven't watched, but in the last episode, there's this council that's meeting, and... Okay. <laughs> I won't be lynched, okay, I'll skip being lynched, but uh, some of you know what I'm talking about. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Um, so anyway, um, but, so, but let's return, um, so let's return to the, to the question of the ancients. Uh, the first observation we must make is that almost everything we actually know about ancient democracy comes from people who are against it. So by far, the voices we hear talking about democracy are people who didn't like it. Um, 
Some of them, like Plato and the figure who's known as the old oligarch, intensely so. Others, like Aristotle, somewhat more moderately. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously, as in a modern political circumstance, there were different orientations politically, of course. But generally, the political perspective of the text that were inherited was from people who didn't think democracy was that good. They didn't really like it. And the political tradition that then was inherited by the West when political theory revived was essentially an anti-democratic tradition that took monarchy rather than democracy as the normal tradition. There was also the question of a Republican tradition. We'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, um, yet, despite this fact that a lot of these people were against democracy, or most of them really were against them, the ones of the text we have, obviously there were people who were for democracy because democracy was clearly strongly rooted, for example, in Athenian and other, the, the life of many other poets. Um, but um, the interesting thing is that, that this problem of democracy is actually the beginning of political theory. Right? Um, so if you think about the Greek poets, like in the other societies that the Greek, there wasn't any basis for political theory. Uh, so, you know, in Egypt, uh, people didn't ask, like, why does the pharaoh rule us? Right? The pharaoh's a god. That's why he rules us. It, it was, you know, if you're talking about norms before, that was considered an adequate explanation. In a society of Greece where politics was contested, where the authority of the ruling elite had to be shared with a broader segment of society, where there was constant political struggle, um, people started asking questions about politics and theorizing about it. And also, that's connected with the rise of philosophy. Um, and it's perhaps instructive here to compare the ancient Greeks with the ancient Israelites, the two peoples whose experience lies at the heart of Western civilization. Um, and it's interesting because in both cultures, unlike most of the surrounding societies, there was discontent with the oppression and domination of the poor and weak, both the strong and rich. Again, we live in societies where the fact that people are discontented with oppression and injustice, right, that seems normal to us. Right? Um, in a lot of human society, that was taken for granted, right? So what is interesting, for example, about these two societies is that you have literature, you know, like Hesiod and the, the Hebrew prophets, um, that, that thinks oppression is a bad thing, which to us is kind of almost a tautology. Uh, but which in, would have been almost meaningless to much of world history. Um, but here's the difference. Although ancient Hebrew literature is filled with denunciations of oppression and injustice, there's no political theory in it. Although the people who wrote the Bible were very far from having a desire to eulogize the Israelite monarchy, um, they're often very critical, there's no suggestion that any of them really contemplated replacing monarchy with democratic rule by the Israelite people. However much a prophetic tradition might sympathize with the peasant and resent an arrogant urban and preach the elite, its thought was limited to protest. They wanted good kings, pious kings, just kings, 
They denounce the bad, the impious, the unjust. Uh, to put it in a modern idiom, uh, they spoke truth to power, but they could not conceive of radically transforming the nature of political power in their society. And that was because for them there was really only one king who mattered, God. Um, the second observation is that um, ancient democracy was not like our democracy, a product of capitalism. It was, however, a site of struggle. Uh, and the particularities of this struggle requires to recognize how different the ancient world was from our own. So we are very used to seeing in ancient society, at least that of classical civilizations of Greece and Rome, a mirror or a precocious precursor of modernity that was for some reason aborted. So it is easy to miss its essential differences. Uh, so I have found a quote here from Max Weber. Uh, he's writing in 1909, by the way. Um, and he's, it's, a, it's a, in a book about a history of ancient, sociological history of ancient society. He says, a storyteller can always count on the heightened interest if his listeners believe that the story applies to their own lives too. Then he can end with a moral exhortation. My story, however, is not of that sort. There is little or nothing which ancient history can teach us about our own social problems. A proletarian of today and a slave of antiquity have as little in common as do a European and a Chinese. Our problems and those of antiquity are entirely different. Therefore, the story I tell has only historical interest, yet it is one of the most absorbing man knows, for it describes the internal disintegration of an ancient civilization. So the first thing that's striking to a citizen of the 21st century is the phrase, as little in common as do a European and a Chinese. And the first response is likely to be a politically correct defensiveness. This is racist, Eurocentric, etc. But what's more important than this superficial reaction is that however different the social problems of Wilhelmine Germany and late Qing Dynasty China might have seen, it should be clear that in the 21st century that they're essentially similar. Or if I may be permitted to substitute for purely accidental personal reasons for Europe and China, Massachusetts and Malaysia, two places on the planet of which I've had a lot of recent direct personal experience, then I would say that there's essentially no difference at all. Of course, there are obvious differences of climate, language, food, social mores, and what's called race. But all these are actually quite superficial. What is going, what going between these two places that are almost literally on opposite sides of the planet actually demonstrated to me at an experiential level was that we live in an era of global capitalist culture and crisis, and that the political manifestation of this is experienced as a crisis of democracy. So <clears throat> this then is perhaps the greatest difference between ancient and modern democracy. Implicit in the modern idea of democracy is its potentially universal character. The association furthermore, uh, since the second end of the Second World War, democracy with the core of global capitalism, means that any society that's not democratic is perceived as backward. In fact, the establishment of democracy as a global norm is really a phenomenon of the late 20th century. And since 1989, it's acquired a particular character because of neoliberalism. Because of the overthrow of the regimes of Eastern Europe and the USSR and the consequent establishment of capitalism took place there through the holding of free elections, democracy must be accounted as a central pillar of the neoliberal order. I know that this goes directly counter to a certain left narrative 
that insist that neoliberals are fundamentally hostile to democracy. But I think this narrative about neoliberalism is actually an attempt, simply another attempt to claim that the left are the only true Democrats, which I think was an idea that was true at one point, but, um, but neglects the phenomenon of what Marxists call Bonapartism. In other words, it's clearly not the case that universal suffrage and constitutional republics will produce a left-wing outcome, right? And in that sense, um, incidentally, uh, ancient democracy, right, that, that where there was a much greater involvement of the people themselves in the process, seemed actually to conform more to a class struggle pattern, right? That, that it seemed as though if, if the whole of the population were really involved, in the running of the city. Um, but implicit in this idea of a democracy um, as a universal norm, if not a universal fact, is that democracy is not culturally specific. Again, ancient democracy tended to have a very particularistic character. Like the true democracy, democratic regimes were Greek or there were certain elements that were similar to them in like the early stage of Rome as a city-state, right? The, and the Greeks didn't really think like, oh, we should spread democracy to the barbarians. That would have seemed a very peculiar notion to the Greeks. It's like, well, this is a way of life that's good for us. You know, when the Gulf War people said, we shouldn't spread democracy to the Arabs. That's like stupid because Arabs are like, not democratic or whatever, right? But, but inherently, I think most people now feel that there's something problematic about that notion. But of course, ancient democracy was in a sense understood as a particular way of life, right? That, that was, it wasn't a kind of norm, as in a self-given norm. Um, and, um, the other difference is that ancient democracy was rooted in the polis, whereas modern democracy is rooted in the nation state, um, um, which is much bigger. Um, in, so in contemplating what separates us from the ancients, there exists another problem. Uh, because of the role that discourse about ancient society has played in subsequent discourse about political theory in later Western civilization, um, an image of ancient society as a predecessor of modern bourgeois society has itself played a role in the ideological development of modern bourgeois society. Um, so an analogy might be made with the difference and similarity of ancient democracy and modern democracy and ancient materialism and modern materialism, right? So the, even though ancient democracy and ancient materialism were in fact quite different from their modern counterparts that share the same name. The fact that democracy and republicanism had existed and played a role in ancient society, like the existence of materialism in the ancient world, and the fact that people reading these texts knew that, liberated modern bourgeois thinkers create their modern versions different as they are. Um, so a good example of this, this interchange between like, the problem of modernity and uh, uh, the ancients and how it's perceived in analogy 
would be the pioneering French historian Numa Denis Fustel de Coulanges, whose pioneering work, The Ancient City, was published in 1864. It's cited by Engels in Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State, which we're talking about. And uh, he himself was the teacher of Durkheim. Fustel de Coulanges looks at ancient institutions and their fundamental differences from modern society against the standard of mod the modern liberal state. The evolution of such a state is for him the measure of progress, and the development of human intelligence is, in his view, above all, the evolution of liberal, perhaps utilitarian ideas of society. The history of Greece and Rome is always at least implicitly judged in terms of their contribution or obstacles to the evolution of bourgeois property and the liberal state. Indeed, Despite the strong disclaimer at the beginning of the book concerning the applicability of comparisons between the ancient Greek and Roman world and modern bourgeois society, his analysis is often colored by an anachronistic tendency to see in Greek and Roman society the rudiments, albeit abortive, of bourgeois principles, idealized forms of property in the state. So the message secreted in Fustel de Coulanges' insistence on the specificity of Greek and Rome and on the danger of, drug, of, of dreaming of reviving ancient institutions is not only a scholarly one, but also a political lesson for his own time. He seems to be warning his readers of the danger of impeding bourgeois progress or going beyond it to the disorders of mass democracy. Echoing Benjamin Constant, whom we read in the reading group, he says that people have deceived themselves about the liberty of the ancients, and on this very account, the liberty of the moderns has been put in danger. The last 80 years, he says, and he's of course referring to the 1780s, 1860s, means the period since the French Revolution, have clearly shown to him that one of the great difficulties which impede the progress of modern society is the habit of which it has of always keeping Greek and Roman antiquity us. Now, nowadays, of course, people are not exactly keeping Greek and Roman antiquity before their eyes. Um, in the period since the First World War, even more in the period since the Second World War, the habit of bourgeois society of keeping Greek and Roman antiquity before its eyes has, of course, dramatically diminished. And the central educational role of classical languages and civilization has long given way to supposedly more practical pursuits. And one wonders whether the decline of a classical humanistic education is not a form of unconscious self-recognition of bourgeois society of its own disintegration and decadence. Nevertheless, one must not discount the significance of the self-recognition, or in a strict historical sense, misrecognition of bourgeois society in classical antiquity. That is, whether a particular vision of bourgeois society as being anticipated in classical antiquity was actually truer, that idea had, I think, actual consequences on the development and self-conception of bourgeois society that probably would have been very different if the examples of antiquity, even if misunderstood, were not present. Um, in fact, between 1750 and 1850, there developed a tendency among French scholars to treat Athens as the model of a bourgeois commercial society. So according to Fustel de Coulanges, the Greeks and the Romans, unlike other ancient peoples, from earliest antiquity always held to the idea of private property. 
and the idea of private property existed in the religion, itself based on that religion, based as that religion was on the individual hearth and family, with its rights of succession and its inherent interest in the individual patrimony, particularly appropriate to a patrician class. He therefore argues that the ancient religion was a patrician institution and that the principal aristocracy and the civic principle were mutually antagonistic. The liberation of property required the predominance of the city over the family and civic law over paternal authority. Gradually, the city began to assume greater importance, having developed as a confederation of families and tribes, and a civic religion grew out of the domestic cult. The city, however, founded on religion as the family had been, still remained resistant to the development of property and the state in the forms that for Fustel de Coulange are the most desirable. Nonetheless, the ancient city contained within it the seeds of its own destruction. He cites two major causes of this destruction, class relations and the natural development of the human mind. A series of revolutions ensued, beginning with the overthrow of the monarchy and ending with the establishment of democracy. In the course of these revolutions, the cities of Greece and Rome seemed to have laid foundations for the development of something like bourgeois property and the liberal state. But they were never able to overcome the particularity inherent in their civic religion until the Roman Empire destroyed the municipal regime and Christianity established new social principles that would permit the development of new forms of property in the state. Long before the end, however, had effectively destroyed whatever seeds of true progress it contained, the advent of democracy endangered the rights of property and nullified the advances of earlier revolutions, which had almost established, as he puts it, an aristocracy of wealth as a ruling class. In other words, a modern bourgeoisie in ancient society, so that you wouldn't have had to have a 2,000-year-long detour. In other words, ancient democracy, a product of a precocious commercial society, paradoxically ended up thwarting the development of capitalism, in his view, which alone could have enabled a direct transformation of antiquity into bourgeois democracy, modernity, without the intervening Middle Ages. But was antiquity really so bourgeois? I think that one should doubt it. There are two problems that confront us when we try to understand the difference between our society and the ancient world. The first is to tend to imagine ancient society as experiencing a nascent capitalism or nascent bourgeois society. The second is the tendency to overemphasize the role of slavery, which is a very complicated historiographical problem. Although both slavery on the one hand and commerce and wage labor certainly played roles in the democratic polis, they were not determined. So one must avoid the image of an idle mob of citizens living off of slave labor, and must also avoid the image of Athens as a bourgeois or quasi-bourgeois society. There was no ancient capitalism. Uh, Max Weber often uses the phrase capital, but he always qualifies it, right? So, so again, capitalism is not something that can be determined on a sort of individual basis, right? There were people who did things sort of like what we would think of as a capitalist is doing. But, but there wasn't a generalized society of commodity production or property. And uh, there are other differences between um, 
Nor, despite the well-known claims of a general disdain for manual labor, should one imagine labor in the ancient polis to have been done predominantly by slaves. So this is a stereotype which you get from reading a lot of uh, basic pro products of the upper class that you know people like Plato and so forth had this disdain for the manual labor, right? But most citizens of uh, Athens would have been engaged in some form of manual labor when they were not participating in the life of the city. Um, and the basis of ancient democracy was a, a yeoman peasant class that could afford its own armor in time of war, the hoplites, right? So to a large extent, the, the ultimate social basis of the organization of ancient democracy was a military fact, right? And often, like the, the artisans in the city, the, the landless people were in the, the, the navy. So again, the Athenian navy tended to be both the most imperialistic and the most democratic. Um, and um, and another thing that is striking when one compares it to, for example, a modern slave society, such as in the American South, where slave labor based on agriculture was integrated into a network of global capitalist production. <clears throat> so there was obviously no global capitalist production, no general capitalist market. Um, but where industrial production was done by free labor in the North or in England, um, in ancient Greek, Greece tasks which we might think of as industrial were often done by slaves, whereas agricultural labor, although slaves might have participated, often seems to have been predominantly done by uh, free peasants. Now, in Rome, that was not necessarily the case. It's true that in the late Roman Republic and under the empire, large latifundia manned by slave labor developed, um, but those were a later development. And uh, again, that, that was triggered by the opportunities for the mass exploitation of human beings caused by successful wars of imperial conquest. So the Romans had many more slaves because they conquered many more people and were more successful in wars. And when you had enough slaves, uh, Max Weber has this description of slave barracks in some of these Latifundia. And uh, he says, well, what does this remind you of? It sounds like being in the army, right? So he's comparing nice digs that compare it this Latifundia to the Prussian army. Um, <clears throat> but that too underwent a social evolution because the end of imperial expansion led to a decline in the availability of slaves. You started to have, have slaves reproduce themselves and families. So the, the prehistory of serfdom, right? We're going ahead of the problem of democracy. Democracy has long ceased to exist. The prehistory of serfdom is, in fact, the simultaneous, so to speak, rise of the slaves and the decline of the, of the free peasant into a kind of generalized dependent status. Um, and also the decline of whatever kind of networks of commerce and local production. So it's a, it's a, it's a part of an economic decline, which has ambivalent effects on the question of personal status and freedom. Um, so indeed, the story of Roman history compared to Greece appears to be that of a patrician class that was far more successful in heading off democratic developments and channeling social tensions into external conquest. But one price of this success, however, seems to have been a far less rich intellectual life than the Greeks. 
So can it be a coincidence that the greatest flourishing of European culture before modern times was in a democratic polis? And this is despite the fact that many of the greatest products of that democracy were either ambivalent or, like Plato, deeply hostile to the democracy that made them possible. Right? You have a Plato in a democratic Athens, not in Sparta. And so although the sociological conditions were entirely different, and therefore the analogy is very problematic, it does seem to me that there might be a certain psychological resonance between an ancient intellectual, Athenian intellectual admiration of Sparta and say a Western European intellectual sympathy for a Stalinist USSR during the Cold War, in which their own intellectual life would have been impossible. Uh, Plato certainly could not have existed in his own republic. The other paradox of the fall of ancient democracy is that the empires that swallowed up the democratic polis um, were large and cosmopolitan. Um, so ancient democracy, I should say, by the way, that while the rise of the Hellenistic empires and then Rome destroyed democracy as a form of life, they didn't really destroy the polis. So the ancient classical empire actually incorporated the polis into their society. So the Hellenistic empires were based on the polis, but superimposed over the polis was this large monarchical structure. And similarly with Rome, right? the, the subsequent breakdown of urban life is a later development. Um, so these large empires um, were cosmopolitan. So ancient democracy was in its direct character, the, the participation of the citizens, um, inherently limited in scale. The negative aspect of the democratic participation of the citizenry in the life of the polis was that it worked against universalism. By contrast, the large empires of antiquity promoted at their best universalist visions of human community. Thus, the universalist strains in ancient Hebrew thought were, I would say, actually promoted by the experience of conquest and exile by the great empires of antiquity, whereas the more particularistic strains were brought to the fore by a focus on the Judean state and the cult of Jerusalem. The perennial emphasis on the longing for Zion has perhaps obscured the fact that it was really Babylon that has been the great creative force in Jewish life. Similarly, it was the Roman Empire that made Christianity a world religion. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that the Jews and the Christians like, particularly like being smashed by this empire, but the context of the large empire, I think, promoted a mixing of culture and so forth that actually promoted a more universalistic vision. And the most universalistic visions, like Stoicism, for example, right, in terms of kind of universal human rights that we think of, come not from the democracy, but from the empire. And of course, within the, the smaller microscale of, of Greek life, the Athenian democracy was the imperialistic power. So it was democratic Athens, it was imperialist, not Sparta. Um, again, it is one of the innovations of bourgeois society and capitalism to make conceivable the idea of the democratic republic on a large territorial scale. Um, nevertheless, democracy, modern democracy, while taking place on a far larger scale than ancient democracy, consider like an election that just occurred in India, where more people actually voted than the entire population of the planet at the time Athenian democracy was at its height. 
Nevertheless, modern democracy has still not achieved its logical totality, namely a single democratic government on a world scale. Indeed, doing so seems clearly impossible under capitalism. One would have to, I think, wait for socialism to achieve that. And even the much more plausible attempts to create a single genuinely democratic Europe are certainly not getting anywhere right now. So capitalism has done two things that I would say have fundamentally altered the course of human history. It stimulated a technological transformation of the means of production that's completely broken from the inherent poverty of pre-capitalist life, and it's introduced a new concept of freedom and equality, although it's not delivered on the promise of that idea. And so the ancient world, for all its brilliant accomplishments, was technologically and ex economically stagnant world, not only in comparison to modern bourgeois life, but even to the high Middle Ages. Um, and now, even humble people in poor countries feel that they have a right, right? The idea that people have a right to a better life and to choose their own government. This is not to say, of course, that they will achieve this, but this aspiration seems natural to them. But what actually needs to be accounted for is modernity, right? So, M.I. Um, Finley remarks that economic growth, technical progress, and increasing efficiency are not natural values, at least not to those with the means to make them happen. Neither are freedom and equality. So if one does not simply regard democracy as a natural idea which existed for a while, even in an imperfect form, before a regression to monarchy set in, one must account for the parallelism of the ancient of modern democracy. So the actual development of modern bourgeois society took place in the interstices of the feudal order and crisis. This feudal order itself emerged long before out of the social crisis of ancient society. But it was not simply a retrogression, but rather a reordering of the social system. Then after, eventually after a millennium had passed, a nascent bourgeois society that was really something new in the world saw itself as the rebirth and rediscovery of the ancient world. At first, what most impressed it politically about the ancient world were the large bureaucratic states like the Roman Empire, as against the feudal anarchy. And the idea of a republic, a non-monarchical city-state originally, appealed to urban bourgeois wanting to be free of, of of feudal overlords. But it was a republican tradition and not a democratic tradition that first appeared. It was actually only later when bourgeois society itself entered into crisis with the age of the Industrial Revolution and the French Revolution that once again the question of democracy could really arise. Again, as I said at the beginning, for the first time in 2,000 years, people embraced the label democrat. So the long 19th century then witnessed the rise after a long apparent dormancy of these thousands of years of the rise of the democratic idea. And Marxism indeed seemed to be the culmination of this democratic logic. Thus, although the word social democrat was a retreat from the word communist, it was also indicative of the fate that socialism and democracy were intertwined. Indeed, in places like Germany, Marxists were indeed the best democrats. In the 20th century, though, democracy, after seeming to be an inevitable trend, found itself in trouble. On the one hand, the rise of mass democracy also brought into existence a powerful, irrational, and counter-revolutionary force far more dangerous than the old-fashioned conservatives. Now, it's another fact that should be mentioned that there's no counterpart, really, to fascism in the ancient world. Uh, perhaps the closest analogy would be the phenomenon of Caesarism, 
But the Roman Republic was not a democracy, and the analogy breaks down upon an examination, although it appealed to many people in the 1930s, including Herman Braun. Nor was there the modern equivalent of, of socialism in the ancient world. To the extent that any pre-capitalist society produced any movement for the abolition of private property, the impulse came from revolutionary, from messianic religious movements like the Mazdakites in Iran, not from an extreme democracy, uh, which was rooted in a concept of private property. And resentment of the rich, which certainly existed, could not lead to the idea of overcoming private property itself. So it's significant the most famous communist thinker of antiquity was Plato, who was a reactionary. And reactionary Sparta, uh, anti-democratic Sparta, although it did not suppress private property, appears far closer to communism than commercial Athens. And furthermore, there were really no industrial means of production to actually collectivize. Um, so, you know, the, if you had like a socialist revolution, you, you, what would you have done? Right? There were no real factories. Factories, I mean, to the extent that it was anything resembling a modern factory in, in the ancient world, it was just a large assemblage of slaves who were put into a workshop by some owner. Um, and perhaps also the greatest difference between modern democracy and ancient democracy is the fact that there were not, well, there were not political parties in our notion of it, but also there was no real right and left. Um, and I think that that there's a, a tendency, right, to see, to speak of democracy, right? And, and th maybe this is a subtle um, distinction, and, and maybe it's the, the point on which I probably should end. Um, we say in Platypus that this idea of the left begins with the French Revolution, right? Or maybe there's some sense of the left going back maybe a century or so earlier to the British Revolution in the 17th century. So the question is, why were Democrats in Athens, right, the democratic tendencies, why were they not a left as opposed to anti-democrats who were right? And I think it goes to the idea of universalism. Right? That there is an implicit universalism in the idea of a modern left. That, that it's, it's, it's the ancient notion of democracy is still a notion of democracy within some pre of, of equality, of you know, this, this agreea, the the equality, the freedom of speech, but, but within the limited confines of a specific community. Whereas I think that the modern notion breaks these bounds. I think that, that there is in the modern notion of democracy a kind of utopian longing. That's why I think that the sense of democracy as a norm speaks to something more than just the practical question of votes. People, people feel that, that, that democracy is a kind of never-ending process, that you can make society ever more and more democratic. And I think, I don't know, I think maybe I'll just like open it up.
say it. First of all, thank you and thank you for making that also known about how, uh, for example, Socrates would have been possible to say these things in the society described in the Republic. That's, I think, very Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that, but I think that it, it's a bit historically narrow to imagine that Christianity brought universalist ideas into the world. I mean, so I think. I mean, it, Alexander, said one before that. Well, I, I think that I think that there were tendencies towards universalism in throughout what is often called like an axial age. And again, I think that they're the product of empires and long-distance trade and people meeting people from different cultures. Uh, I mean, even you know, even in certain ways, if you think about like like there is something kind of uh, open and universal in Herodotus. I mean, there's a lot of universalism in some some classical Chinese thinkers and some of the Hebrew prophets. It's, it, again, it's it's like I think I think what's interesting about it is that the universalist tendencies in Greek thought were not necessarily coming from the part that promoted democracy. And so there's a way in which a modern democracy, which does aspire to universalism, comes from the democracy, but strips it of its particularism, and takes from a universalism that, um, that that came from a different, you know, when I brought the point about the prophets with this, like, speaking truth to power, right, like, often, like, I'll encounter, like, you know, a kind of activism, I was thinking of a kind of, like, religiously motivated activism that protests some injustice, right, like, I don't know, treatment of immigrants, war, whatever, and it doesn't really think about, like, the totality of politics, right, and it's often religiously motivated, and, I think you can see a lot of that in the Bible. Like it's easy to see where that comes from. What, but again, it's what, what strikes me about it is there's no theory of society there. There's no, it's all about justice, right? And there is a sense of justice also in Greek thought, but what's interesting about Greek thought, and it's, it's really unique almost to the poets, is this almost precocious beginning of thinking about what type of society should we aspire to, right? It's not, it has to later combine with a kind of historical consciousness, which you have like in the age of Hegel and Kant, particularly in Hegel, to sort of go into a kind of modern Marxism. But, but there, yeah, anyway, sorry. Um, yes, Richard, thank you. Um, 
Uh, one thing you mentioned you were you were possibly going to elaborate on, but I, I don't think you did, was the the other tradition of republicanism. So we and I suppose I just I maybe uh, you could reflect on that both ancient and modern, and also with respect to the left in in the present. Um, oh, okay, thank you for so so we of course think of republics in terms of democracy. Right? But of course, most republics in history have been oligarchies, right? They haven't been, the people haven't really controlled it. Some, what's different between a, a republic and a monarchy is that it's a, it's a group of people, a constitutional law-based society rather than a personal loyalty society. Um, so republics did exist in the ancient world. They also disappeared largely during the Middle Ages. Uh, um, a predominantly European tradition. I don't know that much about the rest of the world. I think there were ancient republics in India. Um, so in the, the, the city-states, for example, Italy, you have this republican tradition, which is part of a kind of deep background to a bourgeois uh, revolutionary culture, right? It's the idea, it's what I would call the belief in a kind of rule of law, Right, as opposed to the rule of the people. And of course, you can have both. You can have a democratic republic. But the rule of law doesn't necessarily imply that the whole people get to choose. Um, again, I think clearly the fact that there were republics, right, that people knew there were republics, made, um, made the thought of not having a king more possible to people, right? It, it's like, well, you know, the Romans did it or whatever. So when you could have these city-states, right, that were not democratic societies, they had nevertheless this kind of civic loyalty, and they also had their own political struggles, which were sometimes similar. What is different about those republics in sort of the late Middle Ages and Renaissance and so forth is that they were controlled by merchant oligarchies, and those really were the beginning in other words, the society of the late Middle Ages, appearances to the contrary, was actually more bourgeois than ancient Athens and closer to our own, both genealogically. Then, in the age of the French Revolution, right, you have the idea of the democratic republic, right, which is a radicalization, right, of the idea of the republic, right? It's not just that France should be a republic, it's that it should be a republic with universal suffrage, that it should be the republic of the people, not of an elite. Thank you, Richard. First of all, at some point you used the term dormant to speak about how the idea of democracy reigned for, for some periods of time. So that gave me the impression that there is this idea of democracy lying above us and just waiting to reappear at some point. Because I, in some sense, just in terms of expression, just for a future reference. So what I missed when you spoke about the 20th century was uh, the moment of the 50s. You made some references about how democracy reappeared in the late, in the late 20th century. Apollo is a scholar retired. 
Russia, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, and all that stuff, uh, all this, let's say, apparatus uh, from the American side that uh, was put in place. This was not only an issue of American propaganda or whatever, this was, let's say, an epistemological shift. How the issue of democracy was dissociated from uh, from being a whole, um, let's say, a demand for a whole democracy, including social social rights, a more holistic approach of democracy, into a more a, a, a sole nominal issue, a, a legal issue, and how this this was instrumentalized, of course, against the Soviet Union. And so I missed uh, in your speech the issue of totalitarianism. So I'm thinking about Rosudo's critique about totalitarianism. So the, the, the period of the 50s is quite important about how we have this criticization of democracy and uh, until the, the 70s. So in the late 20th century, it's not so much about democracy, what this French sociologist is arguing, we have a shift from democracy to human rights. Because democracy was a quite a valid argument from the Western side, as long as they had the means to also pay for it. So when we have a capitalist crisis from the 70s, they don't have the means to support their argument, because they also need the material means to pay for it. So they start speaking about more cheap, cheap stuff, like human rights. So, yeah. So I probably actually agree more with you than I sound. Um, so the first comment about Dorman, sure. I mean, it's ahistorical. I think I was being a little bit ironic by saying it. I mean, something disappears for 2,000 years and people have forgotten about it. It's like really dormant, right? That, that was maybe a bad choice of word, but I think I was being trying to be ironic. Um, the point about the 50s, um, well, the reason I chose that periodization is that, of course, during the Second World War, the Soviet Union and the Western powers were allied against fascism, right? And what's striking about that, like at a rhetorical level, we're not talking about the reality, but an ideological rhetorical level, is that the fascism was anti-democratic. It was explicitly anti-democratic. So neither the Western powers nor the, the Eastern, the Soviet Union, rejected the idea of democracy. They didn't say, we are opposed to democracy, right? People, people said, yes, we are in favor of democracy. So it seemed, therefore, that the Cold War was an argument about what democracy meant, right? And even if, you know, in Eastern Europe, the dissidents were jailed, or even if the US is giving money to some horrible Latin American dictatorship, and you know, if it's torturing people. The language spoken, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking so much about the social reality of democracy, or, or it's, you know, the way actually democracy in the West masks class power, all of those things, right? I'm talking about, about kind of the global picture of its meaning, right? And, and even that, that kind of masking quality, right, that ideological function of democracy, it's also something that sets aside the modern experience from the ancient one, right? So in that sense, that, that the demos, restricted as it was from fully democratic, right? So the demos did not include women. It did not include slaves. 
and it did not include the, the natics, the metoikoi, or as we would call them, foreigners, right? Resident foreigners, immigrants. So of course, like from a modern standpoint, that's not a very good democracy. But within that definition of the demos, right? Ancient democracy was actually in many ways more democratic than modern democracy. Certainly there was a much greater participation of the population in the actual mechanism of ruling the city. So ideologically, though, it excluded a lot. What, what's, what's striking about modern democracy is that even when it masks obvious inequalities, its purpose, in a sense, is to mask them, right? It's not, you don't, the idea that the rich should rule, right, isn't something because they're better or the well-born. That's not something you hear people say, right? The assumption is that, that we should live in a democratic society. And I think that by the 50s, with the defeat of fascism, and then also, very coincidentally with that, the rise of decolonization and the decline of a belief in the validity of racial categories, right? That these notions of democracy, self-determination, etc., acquired a kind of general currency as a norm. And I'm not saying that they're a reality. I'm just saying that they seem to become a norm. Now, as long as the sort of real existing social societies existed, you could have then a discussion about, you could have some comparison, you, you know, between like, okay, this parliamentary democracy and free election. But I think that, that one of the reasons for the ideological shift of the last 30 years is that when people in Poland or Hungary were given the opportunity to have these free elections, right, they voted themselves out of um, these planned economies with collectivized property, right? So there is a belief which to some extent has some validity, right? So for example, that the right doesn't want democracy because democracy threatens the interests of the rich. So for example, when there were the dictatorships in Latin America in the 80s and so forth that were backed by the US and that were torturing people and all of these horrible things, um, people like Noam Chomsky were saying, well, the US is against democracy. Um, and the thing is, the US was kind of conjuncturally against democracy. In other words, if there is like some danger of like, you know, a communist being elected, yeah, the US will be against democracy in Chile. But if there isn't that danger, on the whole, I think that, that the norm of advanced capitalist life is democracy. I mean, I mentioned like Malaysia, and I mean, there was this election there that surprised everyone, like the opposition actually won despite the government trying to cheat. And what was striking to me was how it changed people's self-image of themselves, like the liberal relations I was around in the world. Like, oh, we can have a democratic election. We are not like a loser country. You know, there is, there is that sense of like being an actual democracy means we are part of the real modern world. Whereas if you have these rigged elections, you're living in a substandard country. And that's what I mean by the sense of it becoming an ideological norm. Now, I don't think that changes or affects the actual distribution of power or wealth or oppression, 
But I'm struck by that as a phenomenon. I'm even more struck by it in the, the total broad range of human history, where for the great majority of human history, people have thought democracy is a terrible, ridiculous notion. And even in the 20th century, you could find a lot of people, for example, fascism was not unpopular, particularly among intellectuals, that people have forgotten that, who would probably have said that. I mean, Heidegger, you know, I'm sure that Heidegger in the 30s was probably quite satisfied that now Germany was done with democracy. Nowadays, people, even if people think that, they would be pretty cautious about saying, let's get rid of democracy. But this establishment of uh, democracy as a norm is also part of the increased authoritarianism. I mean, it is. It is, that's quite correct. If you raise the question of uh, the relationship of Marxism uh, and democracy, how um, uh, for Marxism uh, democracy is the uh, most, uh, let's say, complete form of uh, class domination in a sense, where you have um, a universe, universally approved uh, form of class domination. Mm -hmm. This is the most perfect form of domination, the democratic. But it's also something that Marxists would struggle for against exactly. the ambivalent that's, that's the ambivalent tradition. The ambivalent tradition. Right. Because in Marx, you, there are Marxists that uh, focus more on the uh, dictatorship, the proletariat side of uh, his uh, argument that they tend to interpret as uh, anti democratic. So there are even um, anarcho Marxists who are against democracy. Uh, and also um, more state-centric, uh, state-centric state Marxists that uh, think that democracy is just bourgeois ideology, for example. But simultaneously, you have Marx um, pointing to the Paris Commune, for example, uh, as the example of the dictatorship um, of the proletariat, and we have also Marx saying that um, freedom of uh, each should be condition for freedom of everybody. <laughs> so there are tendencies that are against democracy, there are tendencies that have as their goal of liberation democracy, and then you have a Marxist um, perspective that wants to overcome democracy through democracy. So, so there are two things. One is, I have a feeling that many of those tendencies on the left that say they are against democracy now, that there's a, he thinks that does protest too much. So like plenty of anarchists, you know, when push comes to shove, oh, well, they'll end up voting for some left liberal party uh, because, of course, you know, you don't want to have a fascist regime, right? So it's like, well, they're against democracy in theory. But in practice, they function like kind of rather shrill sort of left liberals. So that's one thing. The other thing is that way of talking about democracy is not the kind of thing that like, you know, the kind of people we talk about, the classics, Marx, Engels, Luxembourg, Lenin, right? Most of the lived in societies that we certainly and they did not think were democratic, right? Either completely obviously undemocratic, like Tsarist Russia or at best a kind of pseudo-sham democracy like Wilhelm, right? They knew they were living in an undemocratic society, and they didn't, they didn't poo-poo the idea of 
bourgeois democracy. In other words, if Lenin would happily have traded the kind of governmental regime of the United States or France for Tsarist Russia, if that's the option, he would say, well, of course you want a bourgeois democracy. He wouldn't have stopped with the bourgeois democracy as a goal, right? But he wouldn't have said, again, right? Because a bourgeois democracy affords conditions of freedom and struggle and also education, right? It's not... The other yeah. thing, yes, sir. So one of the things, I mean, I am I'm trying to I was trying to deal with the word right democracy, which means many different things in different contexts and materials. And I'm trying to deal with like an ancient vision and a modern vision. Like it certainly seems to me one of the experiences of democracy of the Russian Revolution is the idea of Sovietness, right? Which actually is a different democratic form. And and in some ways, the idea of Soviets is actually closer to an ancient idea of democracy. It's 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 a it's a it's closer to a kind of direct popular control, except instead of the demos, it's a class. Also, they had representatives. They had representatives. They had representatives, but again, again, the, the the conception of the relationship of the people represented and their representatives, right, is I think more close. I mean, it's a totally different sociology and a different ideology. But it's in some ways closer to an ancient model. It's, 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 it's in a sense. In a sense. And, and it is different because the origin of parliament, again, is not 
actually democracy, right? So we, I mean, this goes back to the question of Republicanism. We conflate the idea of parliamentary representation with democracy, but of course, parliaments themselves long preceded democracy. Parliaments became democratized, right? That's the historical process through universal suffrage. Then this kind of a terminological, but well, there's two terms, one a terminological question of what do you mean by democracy? And I said, well, I'm not really talking about that. I'm just talking about the word and its meaning, not asking what really is. And again, I would question whether the people felt in sort of real existing socialism that they were actually representing themselves democratically. In other words, I, I see that as an ideological charade, which I think is different from the ideological charade of Western society, where people, I think ordinary people feel, well, yeah, they are represented. Right? They, they may not like the results, but they tend to accept the legitimacy of the system when they vote. In both cases, we have uh, a social dynamic uh, dominating the individuals and society, producing crisis, dominating their life, and then they have a kind of fixed political form as a savior that we always seek to stop the catastrophe and, and save us from these uh, uh, difficulties, socially and individually. Right, and the difference. But, and then it betrays us again. So it's and the difference is the domination works much better in the Western system because people agree to dominate themselves. It's a much more efficient system of domination. One of the differences, I mean, a lot of differences, so one difference is wealth in our society is capitalist wealth. Whereas that really isn't, there isn't really capitalism in Plato's society. So what it means to overcome it would be to go to a different state 
society. Whereas Plato's response at this fantasy is just a kind of stasis. It's a kind of right. It's a kind of uh, idealized philosophical quasi Spartan, right? I mean, and so it's so Plato is concerned doesn't have a sense that one can sort of go forward in any historical sense. It's kind of taking what he thinks is best about a poet and sort of freezing it. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm saying like, 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 I think, and, and what, what motivates, part of what motivates an idea for socialism is not just that it would be a, a just society, but also that it would be a freer society, right? And then again, Plato thinks, right, on a very local scale. He's talking about an ideal poet. Of, that's a small society, right? When we talk about, like, socialism as an ideal, we're talking about the entire planet. It's, it's a different conception of what, what the ideal is, what the problem is, and it's based upon a different assessment of what possibilities exist. But don't you find the problem is common? Doesn't democracy today, isn't democracy today influenced by the rich, the powerful? I mean, Trump is in power. It, it, was he elected because he was the best person or because he had the most money? He wasn't elected because he had the most money. He actually was outspent by Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he's not a poor person. He's not a public hero. Uh, uh, he's not. But below. He's, I mean. he's not. But I mean, it's not as though like like that. But yes, that's true. But the question about wealth corrupting society, right? Like the question is what? It, like it's not. It's like the, the, the ideal that is being held up is either communism or everybody having the same wealth. It's not, it's not that... It, 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 wealth is also the agent of human liberation in history, right? Capital and bourgeois society has also been an agent of a huge amount of freedom, right? The fact that Athens was a more commercial society than Sparta meant that it actually had more freedom. And in any way, I mean, factually, like, the vision of Sparta was like an idealization because it actually, you know, was not the stable totally, right? So it's, it's what, what Plato is responding to as is, is this fantasy of like what an ideal society would look like. But it's a response to his frustration with his own society. And this, one can derive aesthetic pleasure from it, but it's, it's not an actual concrete, political plan. And it wasn't even meant to be in his time. And that's where things like Marxism become different. Right? Marxists actually have an idea about changing the world. Plato is talking about what the ideal should be. Plato went to Syracuse three times to change Yeah, that was a total disaster. Yeah, but I'm trying to make this a political program. I'm sure there are, I mean, I'm not saying there are no differences. Saying that these differences persist in the same level with regards to the problem of economy and the problem of politics, regardless the scale, regardless the time. Well, if you, say, I mean, if you say that, that also makes it seem like an impossible, impossible thing to change. Like, okay, so we can talk about con like the appearance of continuity, but if one can't understand. 
I think Marxism comes to answer the same thread of questions. That's the musical obstacle. It's a meditation precisely on the relation between economy and politics, because we haven't sorted it, even in the modern democracy. But the, the point of, uh, okay, this is a valid perspective. I just want to raise also the Marxist perspective that um, the problem of uh, the wealthy and the poor is a bourgeois uh, concept of uh, democracy and politics as a problem because Marx is um, witnessing and thematizing the problem of democracy um, as uh, the state that rules both the wealthy and the poor. It's uh, a political uh, expression of the domination of society by Hence, Marx is saying that even without capitalism, when we see ourselves as commodities, uh, uh, it's as if we have uh, capitalism still, but without uh, capitalism, the same uh, problem. Hence, democracy, um, Marx is seeing it as a product of um, a modern phenomenon, capital, that um, since people are weakened, by capital and social relations, since you have unemployment, since you don't have a job and no security, then you seek for the vote, like an ontological level to give you safety against this constant situation of emergency that is capital, this constant uh, destabilization. Hence, uh, whenever you see mass calls for democracy, that is an expression of the social decomposition under capital. Hence, if you overcome this dynamic, this uh, domination by capital, democracy wouldn't appear as this necessity or as a savior to patronize society, to save it of itself. The left tends to naturalize democracy or welfare state, both levels, so the social, the political, etc. Whereas this is the problem exactly that society is in a state of emergency and it seeks for political guts, direct democracy, anyway, fixed political institutions of whatever kind to save itself. Whereas we should thematize political this problem and try to overcome democracy as this kind of statecraft. But in order to recognize it as a problem, you have to participate in democratic politics. You cannot change the mind of people because it, it, can, it comes from below, the problem of democracy. You cannot uh, wish it away. So it's this simultaneous necessity, but impossibility of democracy that we're dealing with from the Marxist standpoint. And um, we haven't dealt with that historically successfully so far. Um, and this is a continued problem. I mean, when I spoke about the hegemony of democracy as a norm and an ideal, I mean, I see that as a problem to a radical politics, because if, if all discontents are seen as purely democratic discontents, that's actually a limitation of the vision of radicalism. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just commenting on what seems to me a fact. I mean, I give you an example of, some, uh, of a very particular example. So I've, was involved at one point a lot in like Israel and Palestine stuff. So democracy is used as a phrase very much by both sides. So on the one hand, supporters of Israel would say it's the only democracy in the Middle East. And on the other hand, um, uh, 
critics of Israel, supporters of Palestinians, will say Israel is not a democracy at all, that it's a racist state, etc. So what I'm struck by in terms of the evolution of political discourse is that people who in the past, like the 70s, right, on the Palestinian side, the pro-Palestinian side, would have formulated, say, anti-critique of Zionism in terms of, say, imperialism, socialism, or whatever, now do so often on purely democratic terms, right? Their criticism of Zionism is that it's counterposed to their idea of democracy. I'm not, like, getting into that specific example, but I find that, like, an interesting, let's say, psychological symptom, that the old language has fallen away and that the problem is posed in terms of democracy. And I, I think that that's, that that is generally part of the political trend of the time we live in, that, that problems are posed as a problem of a failure of democracy. So capitalism itself is posed as a problem of a failure of democracy, which I think is at best a very awkward way of formulating it, and really a misleading problem. And that's what's different from Plato's time, right? Plato wasn't dealing with the crisis of capitalism. He was dealing with his resentment as a member of the social elite at the older Athenian masses and his view of philosophy and eternal truth. And I love Plato, but I'm just saying, like it doesn't mean that he wasn't one of the greatest thinkers of all time, but, but I don't think that that's what we're talking about. I think it's a different problem. So, the corruption of the demos by the rich, ever since then. So, so I, I'm not, without getting too much into the question of what actually happened, right? No, 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 but, no, it's a modern discussion. So what I want to say is that the narrative you give, right, is actually has a long history within, like, the history of treating classical democracy. Like I mentioned the Fustel de Coulange. And, to a large extent, it, again, it's this right-wing argument. The thing that did Athens in was it had too much democracy, right? There are other ways of understanding that period of like the period from 431 to 411, or you know, from Pericles' death to the right to the tyrants, and, and it, it, again, like we, we don't have to talk about relitigate like Athenian politics of the fifth century. But, but, but the interpretation that democracy destroyed itself is, I would say, an ideological interpretation and one that has been popular not only with the ancient upper classes, but more importantly with a kind of modern bourgeois anxiety about democracy. Which still might make it true, but 
That's another question. Um, so just to go back to this, the Democratic Republic, um, what what happened to that idea, and um, uh, how, how do we how how do we understand, for example, um, Britain? Sure, but also, um, you know, we have a, a democratic, a, a, you know, two parties in the U.S. A Republican Party and a Democrat Party. What does that mean um, in relation to this history? And like, well, the names are indicative of a certain like historical memory. And, and I mean, so the Democratic Republic is now the normal form of capitalism. I mean, there are a few exceptions to that, like Britain, Japan, etc. But except for figurehead monarchs, they're essentially functionally similar to Democratic Republic. That's the normal form of capitalist class rule is a Democratic. Now, that's not universal because it breaks down, particularly in backward capitalist countries, tend to be prey to authoritarian and dictatorial rule. You know, there are lots of exceptions to that, but that's now the norm in advanced capitalist society. It wasn't even in a large part of the 20th century. Right? You could have imagined an alternative history of capitalism where the norm of capitalist society would be fascism. And so that's the ideological context in which Marxism, which largely operates within those societies, right, has to think about. Like, how do you deal with the democratic republic, bourgeois democratic republic, as the norm? Like, what does that mean? Can I just say one thing, by the way, since the subject of war was brought up in the Peloponnesian War? So one difference, of course, in terms of like the fifth century, is that Athenian and Athens was, you know, again, the the imperialist aggressor, right? Like again, it's this idea of democracy as conducting war. So um, in modern times, the struggle against imperialism within a capitalist society, right? It's a, I think it would be a different meaning the word imperialism, is connected with a particular Marxist understanding of imperialism, right? So when you speak about Athenian imperialism, you have to be careful that you're not analogizing it to a kind of modern capitalist imperialism. And even like Roman imperialism, right, which was, by the way, far more brutal than Athenian imperialism, it had a different socioeconomic logic. I mean, one of, one of the other interesting points is that Phenomena like capitalism in the ancient world, like in Rome, the people who seem like sort of capitalists actually flourished more in times of war than in times of peace. And it had to do with the kind of essentially parasitic quality on the state, right? It's, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a society that, like, again, is, could be parasitic, but was parasitic in a fundamentally different way and had a different logic from modern capitalist imperialism. Can I raise a last, perhaps, but different concern of me? Um, at uh, some point, um, Marx and Lenin, they speak of um, the need to overcome the democratic statecraft by the elementary uh, 
of the state and rely on these elementary social rules that govern our life. For example, if now uh, a car between us gets into, you know, fighting with each other, probably they won't call the state apparatus. People will try to solve our problems on their own. I mean, can't this idea be implemented in a social form in a massive scale and minimize the need for a state, even the most democratic state? Because we may be socialized in different conditions under socialist policy, for example, that would make um, the, our basic orientation governed by these elementary social rules, as they both Lenin and State Revolution, but also Marx, they refer to these elementary social rules. Yeah, they're not. They're so I have two comments. One is an anecdote, which is a story I read from Isaac Deutscher. He talks about um, there was a, a, a period in the kibbutz movement, where part of the kibbutz movement was very uh, pro-Soviet and pro-Stalinist. And a visiting Soviet dignitary was visiting. And it doesn't matter what you think of the kibbutz or Zionism, because it's not really part of the story. Um, so the diplomat, after being shown around asked, where is the jail, right? And they said, there's no jail, right? Implicit in this was that there was like a, a social community, right, that didn't need force to discipline its member, right? And this was sort of, he was incredulous about that. So I think that that notion that human society can exist without mechanisms of state coercion, and I think there are plenty of examples, both pre-modern and even modern, right, tribal society, Right? So the state has not been a universal social form. Also, I will say this about the question of an ancient democracy, modern democracy. We talk about the state as though the state is a continuous entity that we know exactly what it is. So the state, the Athenian state, was something fundamentally different from the modern state. The ancient state, the medieval state, if it really existed in feudal society, and you can question whether there was even was such a thing as the state, was a fundamentally different entity. And we actually live in a society that... What's the difference? What are the different ones? Well, there could be many differences. One difference is it's, it's fundamental the permanence, bureaucracy, bureaucracy control, uh, permanent police force, permanent army, right? The, the impression one gets of Athenian democracy is just of a kind of profound, almost amateurism, right? It's like the kind of thing you'd have in like some small New England town, right? But it worked, right? It worked because people did what was needed from them, right? People, like the whole concept of the hoplites, right? The, the armored uh, citizen peasant soldier, right? This is the people who could buy their own armor, right? If you were drafted into the military, the military gives you a uniform and a gun. It doesn't say, well, everybody who can like afford to buy a uniform and a gun will come and like, right? That's not the way modern society works. And we are actually used to a degree of state control and bureaucratization in modern capitalist society, even the most democratic, enlightened ones, that would for most of human history have just been completely unthinkable. And we've naturalized. 
against this because modern societies are more complex and uh, modern cities involve millions, etc. So that makes these um, uh, armed bodies of men and these professionals of administration of the big state necessary. And uh, that's why the bourgeois revolution is very important and bourgeois society that um, seemed for a moment to um, work through social relations and state became something like um, just the expression of the social relations. I mean, if you don't provide examples or um, um, not exactly examples, but uh, forms of social relations that were pointing to this possibility, uh, people are naturalizing the state because so they. Well, I think it doesn't matter that in Athens they were not professional, they would say, because they didn't have all these complex needs. So you need, you need more to, you know, persuade or follow through this argument. And the point is that uh, humanity discovered forms of social cooperation like trade and this kind of stuff that replaced statist or political forms of domination in a sense, or they were pointing towards to their possible uh, overcoming. I mean, usually we hate um, markets, etc. as leftists, but uh, they were pointing to a possibility that capitalism uh, itself betrayed, and not for markets, but I claim that they were pointing to a possibility um, of a social uh, form that, that relies on social relations and not political um, institutions, uh, huge political institutions. So you're talking about the impulse of, uh, of a certain phase of the bourgeois revolution to deregulate markets, to give markets as an expression yeah, to freedom? Yeah, to make freedom? the state simply an instrument, not a governing uh, principle. That it's something just that facilitates ongoing social relations, how we exchange our uh, labor, our products of labor. Right. I mean, if there wasn't a bourgeois um, revolution pointing to these possibilities, the socialist movement wouldn't have the basis to abolish the state, because that's what happened in the 19th century with the anarchists and the Marxists. They were basing on this tradition, a specific tradition that was peculiar to the modern uh, society. That's what I'm trying to say, how you point beyond the state well, based on the historical specificity of our social relations, not to the fact that the ancient Athens were not professionals or some tribes, for example. You need more historical specificity in the way you well, address the problem. Okay, That's okay. The, okay so, so, I mean, it, it's hard to demonstrate that, that, you know, a modern technical society could run without police forces and uh, you know, in, in other words, the idea of socialism is hard to demonstrate. In terms of like the I mean I, I pretty much agree with you. We're speaking about the idea. The idea of standard now, of course you cannot live without okay. this state, but is it possible to live without it? To live without these professional bodies dictating to the society the way to live. Well, so, so part of what justifies so part of what people what justifies the permeation of the state into society, right, is that people like in a democratic society, you can be you can convince people well it's their state, right. So 
So in, a, in an obviously oppressive dictatorial society, the state appears as sort of external to society, right? That's one thing. The other thing is the state can serve different functions at different points in history. So for most of history, the state was a predator on society. I mean, the state could also uh, serve defensive functions. The state could, could do many different things. Like when you speak about the special bodies of armed men, of course the question is, well, what are the special bodies of armed men doing? Are they preventing people from killing each other? Or are they just going around killing people and taking their property? Right? Special bodies of armed men can be an army of occupation. It can be a police force that people see as nice and polite and you're friendly. It can be a police force that people are terrified of. So I think that one has to ask about also what these bodies do and how they're seen by the society. Okay. I just want to remind the Marxist tradition that it was saying first you have to do the state powers, workers, um, and democratically to rule the state, but then Engels, Marx would say that we have to put the state to the giant pile of history. Right, and I first, I mean, of I, course you wanted democracy, that the majority of the workers controlled the state, but they were not stopping at this as an idea. They were saying that even if this is democratically controlled, still we need to put it to the giant uh, okay. pile of Okay, so, so maybe I'm, I'm missing the point. There seems to be the three things. One is that the state itself, I think, has historically been strengthened in modernity by capital. Therefore, it becomes more of a problem for society under modernity than previously, where the state had a different role vis-a-vis -vis society, if you can even use those terms. Second of all, the, the socialist vision, which I agree with, I'm not, I'm not contesting your narrative, it seems to me there, there are two aspects to the taking over of the state. One is to crush a counter-revolution, right? To defend yourself and things. And the other is the economic function of society, right? In other words, part of the democratic vision of socialism is that the undemocratic aspects of capitalism in terms of that people are subject, even though they may have a vote in the ballot box, that their life in a workplace, right, is authoritarian, right? The way things are distributed, all of that is part of the authoritarian character of capitalism, that that can be transformed by the democratic management of the whole society, right? And I think that that's actually the, the second part of it, right, that people actually, is part of what people wonder about, right? Can you really manage a modern society in a non-capitalist way democratically? Yeah, the left has completely forgotten that. It imagines forms of statecraft that would just be ruled from their majority. But they cannot imagine how they, we could overcome statecraft. That's a bourgeois utopianism, you see. Well, I think that people fear it because they associate it with a libertarian right. Right? They confuse the anarchist vision or the Leninist vision of state yeah. with like, right-wing libertarians who want to get rid of the welfare state. And again, the welfare state, which is a very recent phenomenon, right, is a... It's closed, it's not free. No, no, I'm not agreeing with you. I don't know. I feel like... No, no, no. Okay, let's continue the discussion uh, later.